This morning on Palm Sunday, as we look toward Good Friday and Easter later this week, we're wrapping up our series, Parables on the Road to Calvary. This morning, we'll be reading the Palm Sunday scene from Matthew chapter 21, and then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 25 and read one of the last parables Jesus tells between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Let's begin by reading from Matthew chapter 21 from verse 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then we'll turn over a few pages. We'll read a parable that Jesus speaks to us in Matthew 25 from verse 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is God's word for us this morning. Joshua spent a summer working with an organization fighting human trafficking in Thailand after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young girls had been sold into slavery in this, in this area, local leaders had said, we need to do something. 
We need to do something about this. So they started an organization to rescue girls from slavery and to rehabilitate them back into regular life. They started a school for at-risk children to help get them an education and develop some new opportunities. They started a number of community development initiatives to raise the standard of living for the whole community so that people wouldn't need to sell their children into slavery. So, and they did all this at a risk to their own lives. The slave trade was powerful and profitable, and some people wanted it to continue. So Joshua, during the week, dived into working with this organization that was trying to do this good work. And then on Sundays, he'd walk an hour to the nearest church there in Thailand, and that church had lots of, lots of good things going for it, meaningful community, good worship, lots of good things, good people there too. But after a while, the pastor started to really push Joshua. Why are you out there working with that, with, with those people? I mean, they're Buddhists. And yeah, child trafficking is important, but really, what is that compared to the value of people's souls? We really need to focus on getting people to heaven. And Joshua had some cognitive dissonance there. He agreed that souls were important, but it was hard to process how what was going on in the church and how the people in the church could be okay and good and how those other people out there could be, could be bad. It was hard to process for him how, how that pastor could apply judgment so easily to those in the church and so harshly to those outside. That separation was hard for him to get at gut level. Why would some people belong? Why do some people get into heaven and some people don't when there seem to be so many people doing so many good things in the world? This text that we read for today challenges and surprises us these days. On our gut level, we're often uncomfortable with the idea that some people get eternal life and some people get eternal fire. And so that's our first point for today. We're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable with Jesus separating the people in this passage into the good and the bad. We don't like that. It doesn't sit well with us. Now, that probably would not have been a problem for Jesus' original audience. The people who originally heard this parable, they would have loved the idea. They would have loved the idea that some people got into God's kingdom and some people didn't. That crowd that we read about in Matthew 21 and a lot of people at Jesus' day, they wanted a king who was going to come and start a war. They wanted a king who was going to come and deliver them and deliver God's people and cast all the nations and cast everybody out. They wanted Jesus to come and gather God's people in and chase everybody else out. They wanted the separation of the good and the bad. Judgment was not a problem for them. But for us today, it is. It is. On the intuitive level, we just don't get this parable. It sounds awful to us that Jesus condemns some people to judgment. We don't get how God could exclude some people from his kingdom. It just, it's hard. We want to welcome everyone in, and we want God to welcome everyone in, and we want everything to be okay. We don't get the separation that Jesus shows us in this story. It's just where we are these days. Now, there's lots of things that feed into that and lots of things that come out of that, and we can't cover all those today, but I want to talk today about this reality of judgment, and I want us to see how judgment is actually a good thing 
and how actually on our deepest levels we want judgment. The truth of the matter is that even though we struggle with it, we deeply, deeply want God's righteous judgment. Deep, deep down, we want that. The Joshua who I used in that story a little bit ago who spent some time in Thailand, his full name is Joshua Ryan Butler, and he's actually a pastor in the Portland area these days. A few years ago, he wrote a book called Skeletons in God's Closet. And in that book, he wrestles with the reality of hell, with the challenge of judgment, with with the difficulty of the holy wars that we see in the Bible. And when he talks about judgment, Joshua uses this analogy. Imagine that the whole human race, imagine that all of us share a house. And that house is a mess. I mean, it is a mess. The foundation is cracking and the whole house is tilting. The roof leaks and there is water damage all over. There is mold on most of the walls. Half the windows are broken or just missing. The place is hardly livable. So a contractor comes along and he offers to fix up the place. He says, I can make this livable. So he goes down in the basement and he just plasters over the crack in the foundation. And then he goes up and he puts vases on the floor where the water is leaking in from the roof. So it'll, it'll catch the water. And then he paints over the mold so you can't see it anymore. And then he takes some nice plants and he puts them in front of the windows that are broken or missing. And then he says, everything is great. See, the house looks wonderful, ready to live in. And he's right until he's not. Because the cold breezes are going to blow right through the window and right past those plants. And it's going to be miserable in that house. The mold is going to work right through the new paint. And then you're going to have a worse problem than you did before. The vase is set up to catch the water leaking from the roof. Eventually, they're going to overflow or tip over, and you're going to have even more water damage than before. The foundation is going to keep settling, and eventually the house is going to fall over. The only way that house will stand, the only way it's going to be livable, is if those problems are actually dealt with. The contractor needs to put the house on a new foundation or go down and actually fix the basement. He's going to need to replace the roof. He's going to need to tear out the moldy walls and redo them. He's going to need to replace the windows with windows that are actually good. He needs to throw out the broken, rotten stuff and make a lot of the house new again. That's what we really want in a house. We don't want issues just covered over so they don't look so bad right now. We We want things made right. We want the bad done away with, and we want the house made new. And when it comes to the whole world, when it comes to this big house that all we as humans live in together, that's what we really want. We don't want solutions that just paper over the evil in this world. We don't want God to to give us some half-hearted solutions and then say, look, everything is okay. We want God to judge and do away with evil. We want God to make the world right. And even if we struggle with exactly how that works out in in different situations, deep, deep down, every human being somehow wants to live in a world that is not broken anymore. We want God to confirm what's good. And we want God to do away with what's evil. In the end, this parable tells us that God's God's judgment banishes all that is evil, and that is what we want. 
Ultimately, there are only two options. Either we have to live with evil forever. Either we have to keep kind of making things work a little bit, but still live with all the brokenness of this world that we have right now. Or there needs to come a day when God draws a line. When God makes the house new and he throws everything and everybody out who wants to hold on to brokenness, who wants to hold on to rottenness, who wants to hold on to evil. We struggle with the idea that God will separate people out into the good and the evil. And I think there's some reasons we should struggle with that. But on a deeper level, we want things to be right. And for that to happen, somehow good and evil have to be separated. And part of the reason this works for us in the Christian faith is that we have a God who is powerful, who is knowledgeable, who is righteous, who is just, and who is loving. We can trust God to make the right call. We can trust God to be righteous and loving. We don't know other people's hearts, right? Often, we hardly even know our own. We can't look at other people and know what's going on with them at the deepest levels and know where they really are. But God can look in people's hearts and he can see all the good and evil and all the commitments and all the brokenness there. And we can trust, we can trust that God knows everything that's going on and we can trust that God is completely just and completely righteous and that he will do the right thing. God is deeply passionate about justice. God cares deeply for the vulnerable. God wants the world to be right, and he has the power and the love to make that happen. Deep down, we want and we need God's righteous judgment. But of course, this parable shows us not just that we need judgment, not just that God will bring judgment, but it also shows us that people might well be surprised at who's, who's welcomed in and who's sent out. Because we so often misjudge ourselves. We misjudge our works. We misjudge what's going on in our lives. The ancient Egyptian book of the dead gives a vivid description of the judgment of each dead person. And the way that they describe it is that your heart or your soul, you go before the god Osiris, and you have to list out all the bad things that you've done and all the good things that you've done. And then your heart, your soul, is placed on a set of scales. And on the other side of the scales, there's this white feather, the white feather of Ma'at. And that feather represents truth and harmony. And Osiris weighs your heart against that feather. And if your heart is lighter than the feather, you've been a good person. And you're welcomed into eternal bliss. But if your heart is heavier than that feather, well, then your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds and you're cast out and consumed by the forces of darkness, and you disappear into nothingness. It's a pretty mechanical thing. You just have to be good. Good people get in. Bad people are thrown out. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're in great shape for eternity. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you're in trouble. And that's it. It's all about what you do. And at first glance, it might seem like this parable in Matthew 25 is Jesus doing exactly that. 
If we just glide along at the surface level, Jesus seems to be saying that people who have done good enough go on my right and they're good, and people who have done enough bad go on my left and they're out and that's it. It can feel like Jesus is saying, well, just line up, measure up your good and bad deeds, and that'll decide where you go. And some people do read this parable that way. But that's not really the heart of Jesus' message here, and it certainly isn't the heart of the whole Bible. Jesus tells this story between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus is welcomed into, into Jerusalem by an open-armed crowd. They're shouting his praises. They're, they're so happy he's there. But they don't know what he's really up to. They had a vision of the coming kingdom and of judgment that was going to be great for them and bad for everybody else. But that didn't actually fit Jesus' plan. And then there were the religious leaders who have grown more and more opposed to Jesus over the course of the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 26, just after the text that we read for today, those religious leaders, they go out and they plot how they can secretly get Jesus arrested and killed. All of these people, the crowd and the religious leaders, they're convinced that they are right. They're convinced that the scales are going to come out in their favor. They are convinced that they are good people. But these are the people who are going to turn on Jesus. They're going to turn on God himself and try to get rid of him, try to kill him, try to wipe him out, because in the end, they can't stand what he's up to. They don't really know Jesus. And we see that dynamic in this parable. The second group, the goats, the king in his judgment tells them to depart into eternal fire because they never knew him. And the goats are shocked at this. They didn't realize they'd ever seen the king before. They, they thought everything was good. But no, the king says, I don't know you. You never knew me. These are people who thought they had everything going for them, but really in their lives, they were just doing Palm Sunday over and over and over again. They were welcoming Jesus in as the king who would be their pawn. They were shouting Hosanna to the Lord who would fulfill their plans. They didn't want the king that Jesus really was. They wanted the king who would do what they wanted. They thought they were good enough. And as it turned out, they were working on the wrong scale. Because as the Bible, as the Bible shows us clearly, none of us are good enough. We all misjudge ourselves. And yet, and yet when we come to face judgment, when we stand before Jesus on that last day, it's not about what we've done. It isn't about what we've done. God's judgment doesn't depend on how good or bad we are. In the end, God's judgment depends on the work of Christ and on whether we know Jesus or not. And all of us, we need Jesus to come and save us. We need Jesus to save us because our works, what we do, is never going to be enough. The world is a mess. It is a broken house and we've all contributed our own special little bits of brokenness to the brokenness of this world. We're sometimes surprised and troubled at the idea that not everyone is saved. 
But maybe we should be more surprised at the idea that anyone is saved. If you've ever been thinking about buying a house and toured a real junker, you know that sometimes it's more work to renovate a house than to just push the thing over and start again. The Lord could have looked at humanity. He could have looked at the mess we made of this world and just wiped us all out and started over again. But instead of choosing to wipe us out, God graciously, generously provided Jesus so that we could be saved. We're doing a small group study series on generosity this year with a few other families from our church. It's a video series. And in one of those videos, the speaker names the reality that it's hard for us to tithe. Whatever the number, 10% say, it's really hard for us to let go of that 10% of our money and to give it to the Lord. But, says the speaker in this video, but let's, let's turn that image around. Imagine that you were offered a job where this incredibly wealthy person came to you and said, I want you to manage my money. And every year, every year, put 10% of whatever profits there are back in the account and keep 90% for yourself. Manage my money, keep 90% or so, give me 10%. That's what God does to us. He's so generous. He gives us these resources. Then he asks for us to give, to give a small percentage back. Now, I think that's true for our giving, but I think it's also true for salvation. Sometimes we're troubled because it seems like God isn't as generous as we think he might be. But the reality is that God doesn't owe anybody salvation. God doesn't owe anybody anything. And yet, and yet in all of life and in how he saves people, God is generous beyond what we could ever expect or dream of. Jesus didn't have to come and save anybody. He had no obligation to us, none. And yet he came. And in the cross of Jesus, we see God's love for this world so clearly. In the cross of Jesus, we see God himself suffering for people who had brought this mess on themselves. And on the cross, we see Jesus living out this parable. On the cross, Jesus himself was hungry, thirsty, lonely, naked, sick. Jesus loved the broken and hurting people. Jesus loved us so much that he became one of us. He loved us so much that he took on our suffering out of his grace and his generosity. We see that in the cross and we see that in the whole life of Jesus. He gave food to the hungry. He welcomed strangers in. He healed the sick. He cared for the vulnerable. He did all that and more. Jesus' ministry is full of him reaching out to those in need and bringing them into his kingdom. God is gracious and generous beyond what we could ever dream of. And given that Jesus came to save us, given that Jesus identified with us in our suffering, in our brokenness, in our trouble, this parable poses two difficult questions for us. And we're going to wrap up with those two questions today. The first question of this parable is what we've done with Jesus. 
The heart of this parable is really about how we have responded to Jesus. Do we treat Jesus as Lord? That is the question. And one sign of whether we treat Jesus as Lord or not is what we do with Jesus' people and what we do with the poor and needy. In this parable, Jesus identifies himself with the most vulnerable of his followers. In verse 40, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, there's some disagreement about how exactly we understand that phrase. Some people want us to understand that phrase that Jesus is saying, whatever you did for any poor person, you did for me. Other people want to say that Jesus is really emphasizing, and he's talking to his disciples as he tells this parable. Other people want to say Jesus is really emphasizing that it's whatever we do with the least of the gospel ministers, whatever we do with missionaries, whatever we do with people who give us the gospel, that's what Jesus is interested in here. Some people want to say this is about everybody. Some people want to say this is really narrowly and specifically about the people who have gone out to spread the gospel. And I think the right answer is somewhere in between. I think it does matter in terms of whether we belong to Jesus, how we treat everybody who's vulnerable. But I think Jesus is also pointing out to us that it matters especially, it matters especially how we treat God's people and how we treat people who have gone out to spread the good news of Jesus and his grace. The way we treat Jesus' representatives the way we treat the gospel is a sign of how we're really treating the Lord Jesus. Jesus is not balancing our good and bad works on the scale and saying we have to measure up or we're out. Jesus is asking the question in this parable, what have you done with me? Jesus is asking us, what have you done with me? Have you treated me as a pawn for your own schemes? Or have you treated me as the king and the Lord of your life? Jesus judges the sheep and goats in this parable based on whether he knows them or not, based on the connection they have to him. And then how they treat the poor and vulnerable is, is an indicator of that, a sign of that. But the first question is, do we treat Jesus as Lord? And that leads to the second question. Do we treat other people like Jesus? We need our relationship with Jesus to be right. And if our relationship with Jesus is right, then we will care for other people. If we really believe in Jesus, we will care about the vulnerable. If we really believe in Jesus, then we will care about others who are hungry, thirsty, lost, in need, sick, everything. If we really care about Jesus, we will respond well to the gospel and we will respond well to those in need. Now for myself, and I, I know for many of you, that, that feels like a burden. We feel like we're already maxed out, like we have more in our lives than we can handle. And now Jesus comes and it can feel like he's saying, you're not doing enough. Step up your game. And maybe sometimes we need to hear that. But I think sometimes we make this more, more complicated than maybe it needs to be. Jamie was a mother of five young children, and, 
And passages like this, parables like this, really troubled her. She felt guilty when she read them, when she heard them. She felt like she wanted to do more, and she could picture all the hospitals and soup kitchens and all these places where she could volunteer. But she had five kids. She had no time to get out the door to do anything else. And so she just lived with that sense of guilt for, for a long time. And then one day she had a realization as her kids all came pounding into the kitchen together one day. Mom, I'm hungry. Mom, I need a drink of water. Mom, is my sweatshirt clean? Mom, I had a really bad day at school. Mom, I don't feel so good. And Jamie realized that right here in front of her, right here in her house every day, there were people who were hungry and thirsty, who needed clothes, who sometimes needed too many clothes, who needed help who needed comfort. And so from that day on, Jamie, when she heard her children saying, can I have something to eat, heard Jesus asking, when I was hungry, would you feed me? When her children asked her for a drink of water, she heard Jesus asking, when I'm thirsty, will you give me a drink? When her kids asked her for clean clothes, she heard Jesus saying, when I need clothes, will you give them to me? Often in our lives, we can begin at home. We can begin with the people who God has already put in our lives. Now, we do need to stretch ourselves to deal with bigger questions of justice and peace and poverty and oppression. Sometimes, listening to what Jesus has to say in this parable will push us to go out around the world. But other times, what Jesus has to say to us in this parable means caring for the people right in front of us. It means taking care of young children. It means taking care of people we know who are getting older and just can't handle it anymore. It means mowing the neighbor's lawn or getting the snow off their driveway. It means buying coffee for a friend. It, it means helping a coworker out with a project when they're a bit behind. Even when we can't do everything, we can do something. In some ways, we're called to answer this text by supporting gospel work and works of service around the world, by caring about the gospel going out to those in need, by caring about victims of human trafficking. We're called to do all that, but we're also called to help the person sitting next to us, the person just a couple cubicles over, the person who's already in our lives. We can't change the world by ourselves but by God's grace, we can help the people out who he's already put in our lives. And when we help people, whether it's the person next to us or someone around the world, we're serving the Lord Jesus himself. This text leaves us with some assurances and some challenges. We're assured that God will judge evil and he will make things right. This world will be made right and if we follow jesus if we submit to him as our king then we will be made right and all the brokenness and the lostness and the suffering and the terrible things in our lives will be made right we are assured in this text that jesus jesus saves the people he knows if we belong to Jesus, if we put our faith in him, then we belong to him forever. If he is our king, then we are his people forever through life and death.
And so we are challenged to treat Jesus as our king. We are challenged to live our lives as if Jesus really is the Lord of everything. And so he is the one in charge of our every moment. And then we are challenged to care for those in need. We are challenged to respond well to the gospel and to those who bring it. We are challenged to respond well to our brothers and sisters in the church. And we are challenged to respond well to people in need everywhere. We are assured that God will make things right. We are assured that if we believe in Jesus, we belong to him forever. And we are, we are challenged to treat Jesus as Lord and to care for other people. Jesus is gathering his people in by his grace. May we be among them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you come to us with honesty and with challenges. And we even thank you that you come with judgment in the end. But Father, we pray too that you come to us with grace and with love, with forgiveness and with hope. We pray that you help each of us to embrace that hope. Help us to catch hold of Jesus, maybe for the first time and maybe as a renewal of our faith again today, but help us to catch hold of Jesus and to hang on to him. And through Jesus, transform our lives so that we can live like Jesus did, caring for those in need, sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. And Father, we pray that you renew in us our hope of eternal life with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.